0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to health care. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Before we start this episode, we just wanted to put a trigger warning up top for eating disorders and sexual abuse.
3: Hey guys, it's Candace. And Kayla and we are directionally challenged. Oh, yeah. We thought we would just have it all figured out by the time we're in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. No, we don't.
2: (laughs) But that's totally cool, right? I mean, it is. And I have to say, we took a little break and I have missed talking to you and Mel and just are creating these wonderful conversations for our listeners. Um, Candace, you had a crazy experience this past month. Are you going to give us any details or what, what happened? What? How was your trip?
3: Oh, yeah. The scoop. Um, the trip was great. I mentioned in our last uh, episode that aired That we would be heading out in an RV as a family, dog included, for a month. And uh, it was wonderful. You know, we went to um, smaller towns up the Oregon coast. Uh, It was wonderful to also be received by towns that were taking uh, COVID-19 very seriously. So we just continued to social distance just in different places. And It was nice to experience the fresh air. We had so much of it. There were unheard of winds our entire month. So, uh, you know, we call it the windy trip. Uh, So we were (laughs) wherever you go, there you are. So we had a lot of time um, indoors. I made I did a lot of puzzles for the first time. Never been a puzzle kind of gal. But I'm just going to say it and just say it straight to you. I made those puzzles my bitch, Kayla. Wow. I really did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those like floral, you know, cabin arrangement puzzles, didn't know what was coming for them.
2: Wow. So, sounds very eventful. Yeah.
3: <laughs> very eventful this last month. No, it was really beautiful. You know, we we were really lucky that we were able to, cons- you know, with Joe and I and we don't have a 9 to 5 and so we were able to have that experience together as a family. It was it was really special and and I think um, it was—it's a positive thing we can all look back on uh, for for years and decades to come. How are you? How was your month?
2: It was been? very wonderful. Sweet little Poppy turned one, which is um, a, a huge feat because, as I've been told by many friends who are mothers, you included, Candace, the first year is the hardest, and so I say the first year celebration is definitely a celebration for the parents that you made it through, that you did it that they're still alive. <laughs> um, but it was really oh, yeah. fun. Yeah, it was really great. And, you know, we weren't able to celebrate like we had wanted to with friends, but family got tested and came over. And so it was a small celebration, but it was lovely. And, uh, I now have a one-year-old, which is so cool and crazy to say.
3: Um, now what cock- what was your cocktail of choice for mama on Poppy's birthday?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Well, we have a 90 year old grapefruit tree in the back of our house, so it had to include fresh grapefruit juice. Um, so I went with a Greyhound, which is kind of one of my favorites. Um, nice. And yeah, that's our Wi-Fi password. Don't tell anyone. <laughs>
3: yeah. I'm coming over. We're all watching Netflix in your front yard, right? <laughs> well, we're so excited to be back, be recording. And we have a really special episode for you guys today. Uh, A few weeks back, we actually on our social media asked what topics you guys wanted to hear about moving forward. And a topic that came up that we've actually uh, been asked to discuss every time we've asked uh, our listeners and our audience, all of you, uh, what you wanted us to talk about um, is eating disorders. And this is something from day one we've had requests in that we would sit down and talk about. Kayla and I initially we've spoken about this before, that we wanted to really take our time before we broach the subject. This is something I've never struggled with in my life. Kayla, we spoke about this before. Yeah, You have not struggled with this either. So so we just wanted to make sure that the timing was right when we finally did discuss this subject matter. It's serious. and And we wanted to make sure that this episode was... Uh, resourceful to anyone who has struggled or knows anyone struggling with an eating disorder. So we
2: are going to sit down with Stephanie Covington-Armstrong. She is a writer, speaker, wife, mother, survivor, and advocate for healing trauma and your relationship with food We love her. She's made it her life's mission to help people recover from the pain and self-loathing that leads to food and body obsession. Her book, Not All Black Girls Know How to Eat, is available where all books are sold.
3: Eating disorders know no age. They know no gender. They know no race. They know no financial bracket. Uh, It is estimated that 30 million Americans have struggled with eating disorders in their lifetime and 10 million of those are men. We're really grateful to be
2: able to sit down with someone who is willing to share their story. So here is our conversation with
0: Stephanie.
2: And we are here with Stephanie Covington-Armstrong. Stephanie, we are so excited that you've joined us today. Um, We've had so many listeners ask for an episode about eating disorders, and I think it's probably the single most requested topic that we've had, um, so we're happy to have this discussion with you today and have you share your story. Um, we want to dive right in. When did you first realize that you had a struggle with a, an eating disorder?
4: I was like late to the eating disorder party. You know what I mean? Like I, normally, a lot of times it starts in early teen years. For me, I um. I write about it all the time I, I I experienced a really harsh um childhood rape at when I was twelve, and that kind of shifted everything for me. I distanced from my family i i I literally it was the before and after of my life i could I, I had other traumas, food insecurity, and um, that experience just shut me down in a way that I started looking for ways to control and I think. Around, uh, I remember living in New York. I have my own apartment. I'm from New York, and I was about eighteen or nineteen, and I started like the yo-yo, like insane yo-yo dieting, like all kinds of, um, you know, I don't want to name names because I don't like to give product endorsements, but I I started liquid dieting and diuretics and um, exercising obsessively, like trying to run off every calorie. And so it started slowly for me. It wasn't like I woke up one day and was like, "I'm going to control my food." Um, and, and I think it's really important that I acknowledge it was never about the way my body looked, as much as it was about. I just, I, I didn't understand how to live in the gray area. It was black or white. I was either like perfect or nothing. I was either right or wrong. I was like, there was, I was either lovable or. A piece of shit like there was no like balance and so when um I was living in New York I mean Los Angeles and I read this article and I um and it was I'm not gonna name the magazine but I read this article and it said bulimia the new diet now at this point I had tried everything I had you know I had a habit of like I, I had disordered eating for a very long time um every Monday was a new diet I, I tried, you know, fast and every weight loss secret. You know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it was, I don't know, five, seven pounds. So it was never about my body as much as it was about if I could look perfect on the outside, then nobody would understand um my deep sense of loathing and brokenness and how I just felt like a burden in the world. And so that's that, that's the stuff that built my eating disorder. And then I read this article, Bulimia, the new diet. And I want to say that as a writer, it was when I wrote for magazines at the time also. So it, I understood that the writer intended this to be um, more like a, a warning. I read it as a how-to, right? Like I was like, oh, this is amazing. Let me try this. And like, that's how gone I was right? Nobody would read this stuff. I mean, it was a really disgusting article. It sounded awful, but I took this and ran. I was like, this is a way, because at this point I was just shoveling down calories. I was just, so my compulsive eating and my binge eating had suddenly taken over and I couldn't stop myself from just like, as soon as I started to feel any feelings that were unacceptable to me. I reached for food, I reached, um, and then I reached for the bulimia. And I had the anorexia, which was like a big high. If I can go days without eating, it was like amazing. And I was, I had this sense of superiority. And I was, um, you know, um, the bulimia was really difficult for me because I had grown up poor. And I, I, you know, I I could use the word food insecure because that absolutely comes into place. And I grew up around a lot of poor people who were not food insecure, but I, my house was a library, and the refrigerator was empty. There there was always money for books. Cannot explain this, but that's just how I lived. And I just um, once I got a hold of this disease, and once I really believed that like this was the magic cure, I could eat whatever I want. I could throw up, and then there was that. The, the anxiety just like, um, it suppressed the anxiety. I would go up and then I would suddenly feel like I can function. So having no coping mechanisms, having a culture that absolutely frowned on getting mental health support, like therapy was like, no, we do not go to people and talk about our feelings. And we especially don't go to white people and talk about our feelings because, you know, we've all seen the, you know, the Henrietta Locks and the Tuskegee Airmen experiments and like this, I'm sorry, the Tuskegee experiments. And we know what happens when we trust um, white mental health support. So that that was kind of, I was raised in a very politicized home. um, Very like, you know, I always say like my mother was Angela Davis with the bigger Afro. So, you know, it was really all about that strong black woman archetype, right? Like being, being strong and having not being able to control my eating was it was like the definition of weak and and it 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 felt so shaming you know not to be able to diet like a normal person like I had friends who would diet and they'd be like oh I'm done and then they like move on and I like would get to the depth of some feeling and then like fail because I didn't understand that with people for people with high levels of trauma, diets don't work, and you're not a failure it's it It sends you into more deprivation instead of solution.
3: did you know um did you know what bulimia was, or did you really just take it as oh, this is like a how to diet plan did you know did you have an idea of um, eating disorders and did you kind of identify it as that at the time or were you pushing it away?
4: Well, I knew I had anorexia at that point, but I, listen, I, I, you know, I was smart. I read, but I, now we didn't have the internet where you could like get on and there were all these support groups for, you know, staying in your disease. Um, so it wasn't as accessible, but I, I, when I read the article, bulimia, the new diet, it had all the warnings. So it told you like you know, the health risk, it, it it didn't, this did not spell out like a shiny, good idea. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just want to say like, that's how far gone I was in my disease thinking, right? Like that is how desperately I wanted to run away from, um, the trauma feelings and not, not having tools to identify them, not understanding that for me, food was no longer just food right? It, food was a, like, I weaponized my meals, right? They became a way for me to prove that I was a failure, to prove that I, that something was wrong with me. And, and, and if I could, like, get one day of, like, starving, then, I, then it, like, washed the slate, and I was amazing. So, so, you know, living in my head was like living in crazy. I was completely nuts and, and absolutely unaware that, of how big my problem was. So I knew about bulimia. I just didn't know like, that it was going to take me to my depths.
2: So you're starved emotionally and then you're starving, essentially, as well. When did you realize that those two were connected?
4: Therapy. Mm. <laughs> Therapy. Um, you know, um, I just want to say this because growing up, food insecure were In my childhood, my big dream, like my biggest dream was not to write books, not to do any of the things that I got to, but to have a full refrigerator, was to go to the store and buy whatever I wanted. Like that was, that was like, that was the hill I was going to die on. That was my dream. And then um, to the point where I would have a refrigerator full of food and then I would binge and purge it, I had this other extra added bonus of this deep shame, this deep shame of coming from a place of no food and knowing what it was like to grow up hungry and like going to bed hungry and starving and hoping, hoping for like not wanting to tell people, like desperate to go to school so I could eat, right? Like I was one of those kids who had free lunch and free breakfast and, you know, made friends with all the people who had food in their refrigerators on a regular basis. And um, so throwing it up and, and and it, i mean that that caused me as much pain as my own eating disorder mm. you know like that felt like a that felt like a sense of betrayal um like i couldn't quite like come to terms with mm.
3: and it's actually quite common for for those who grew up grow up with food insecurity to then have Issues with food later on. I, from what I began to read, because I never would have ever put those two things together. Um, have you heard more stories about that? The more that you've gone and uh, given talks and met more people within the eating disorder community, do you feel like there are a lot of um, other people who relate to your experiences that you might not have known before?
4: I'm on a text chain with with like eight other black women, and we all talk about this. You know, we didn't all grow up poor, but there was the shame of eating more than your portion, right? Like, the, you know, the shame of um, looking a certain way that so that you allow your family to look a certain way. I've worked with a lot of women and families, and that seems to be like a real big part of the disease because eating disorders are a family disease. They're passed down. They... Um, It's the way we talk to our children about food. I have had the great fortune of being in environments um, like the gym and other places where I I get to talk to groups of mothers about some of the pitfalls of how we talk about food. You know, the clean plate club, like, no, you don't want your kids in that club. Um, Good food, bad food. So... um, I always have so much to say around this issue that I can.
2: (laughs) No, this is so, it's, it's just so fascinating. I, one thing I really um, wanted to discuss with you, you know, you talk about how you try to hide it from your family, but was there ever a moment where you were quote unquote hiding it, but also hoping that someone would notice and say something?
4: Okay. This is how, yes, yes. So um, at one point I left Los Angeles 'Cause I would, you know, I was very big on geographics when I was in the height of my disease, right? Like I'd get busted at work for throwing up or or not being able to focus. So I would always quit my job, my boyfriend, my apartment, like whatever it was, it was like quit, 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 ditch. And then I'd go back to New York and I I um nanny for my sister for a year and my oldest niece was eleven. She had a baby and an eleven year Maybe she was nine. I don't know. And she told her mother, she told my sister, she's like, you know, Auntie Stephanie's goes in the bathroom every day and she just throws up a lot. And so my sister, who knew nothing about this, who had no understanding of an eating disorder and who just, you know, loves me more than any other human being on this earth, um, set me down and she's like, listen, I'm worried. And, you know, I hear you're throwing up and what's that about and help me understand. And I said, when I was 12, uncle so-and-so raped me and this is the way I function. And so for me, outing my childhood rape was the way that I got away from anyone discussing my eating disorder. Like I was, was this- way more. Wow.
2: Was that the first time you had told your sister about it?
4: Yes. Wow. But I only told her to take the focus off the eating disorder. Right. Like I was, like, I'm, this is my way of explaining like, this eating disorder was so um important to me that I was willing to talk about a much deeper, more painful shame so that I could keep throwing up without it like anyone bothering me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so I'm just saying, like when you say like, oh, we're only as sick as our secrets, that like I was getting rid of secrets in order to stay sick. Wow. Um, right. Right. Because I I didn't have any coping mechanisms. I didn't know how to, I did not, here's the thing, I didn't know, I didn't know at that point that underneath all of this eating and binging and craziness were these deep seated feelings that may or may not have been true, right? I didn't know, but I didn't want, so I just ate and it kept, it. you know, they'd suddenly like little thought bubbles pop out occasionally, But basically my job was to suppress all of my trauma. And um, as long as I was eating, those bubbles didn't get too high. Like those thought bubbles didn't, they didn't really affect me. I was just, I was just on this insane run.
2: So your sister, who is one of the people in your life who cares about you more than anything, finds out about this, about your struggle with your eating disorder, and also this horribly traumatic experience, is that when you then switch to, does she help you find help? Or what happens next in this process? Okay,
4: what, I, what happens next when you're not ready, think of it as like a crack addict, right? Or think of it as drugs, because I, I have to liken this to drugs, right? Mm-hmm. I was not willing to give up my drugs. So, so what I do I do? Um, I thought it was a perfect time to leave New York, and go back to LA where I was independent and I could live alone and no one could like I could hide right. So, so, so I promised her I was going to get help and I came back to LA, mm-hmm. um, um, where right. I was certifiably crazy and ch- charming. And I mean, bulimics are a special group, right? We're outgoing, we could be like friendly, like. You know, in my book, I talk about how I would go on dates, like three dates at the same restaurant at this like in a row I'd go on a date, I'd throw up date number two would come, I'd throw up date number three would come like like I didn't even know how insane I was like the waiter knew I was insane, you know, but then I would never go back to that restaurant so I'm saying like i it took me a long time and i was watching television and it said and it was a movie of the week oh i'm aging myself but it's true it's a movie of the week and it was talking about like someone this famous person having an eating disorder and it said if you have an eating disorder here are some ways to get help and i got my pencil out and i wrote down some before that in New York, I had um, found a support, um, one of those eating disorder programs on the back of the Village Voice when I was on the subway, and it said, if you have a problem with bulimia, we can help you. And so I went to this famous hospital in New York and I joined their guinea pig program. And instead of helping me, like they just, I felt like a purple giraffe. Like they couldn't quite acknowledge or understand that black people could have this problem and they and I felt that I felt their bias um Mm. so eventually I like slunk out of that program because I I just remember thinking oh they 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 can't help me like like no one can help me wow and um I came back to New York and when I saw that thing I called that number and I started seeking out support groups.
3: And all those support groups were here in Los Angeles that you started to go to. Um, yeah.
4: I mean, support for this kind of thing are all over the world. But yes, I went, I, and, and, you know, I, I started going to different things and I started, um, I was raised an atheist, which I think was now that I think about it kind of a good thing. Cause I didn't have to fire, um, a spiritual thing. It needed to happen in three ways. I needed the support of a group. I needed um, the safety of a really good therapist, and I had to, you know, like like a like a bad lover. I had to find the right fit for me, mm-hmm. and really um, commit to it, which I did. I went to um, there was a place here. Um, I, I guess I have to say this because there was a place called. I was a starving writer, like who did all these little jobs, but. I found a place called Southern California counseling center, which has a sliding scale. And I think that's important for people like me, Um, like the Maple group, like they do this thing. And so I went to an intake and I was, I, I had stopped throwing up because of the support I had and because I had found the spiritual community, but I was still like not healed. Like the, 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 like what was happening between my ears was where nobody wanted to live. It was not fun. And so I, I went there and my, my questions, I was always like, well, yeah, you can help other people, but not me, or, or I can't afford this. And, and so the, the counselor was like, okay, um, how's $5 a week and you can come twice a week? And I was like, right, right, right. so the universe was like we, we, like, we got you, girl, like you can do this. Yeah. And all it required was for me to like let go of my belief that I A didn't deserve support and B that that I that it wouldn't work for me. And I just remember like feeling bamboozled after I went to therapy. I was like, I have a whole community that does not understand the beauty of the 50 minute hour. This Mm -hmm. is someone who's just there to help you learn how to move trauma through your body and out of your body. Because I gave this analogy the other day on, on, on my Insta where it's like, you, you know how we all have been in a house where there's a stuck window and we keep trying to unstick the window and the window and and the thing we're trying to do at the same time is not break the glass. Right. And a lot of times instead of getting the proper tools, maybe it's, Nailed shut, or maybe it's painted shut. But instead of getting the quite the right tools to open the window, we just give up, right? And we just leave it stuck, and we stay in this discomfort. And to me, that's one of the things therapy does, right? It unstick. It helps you unstick the window so you can open it and you can breathe. And so that's, um I don't know. That analogy came to me, and I swear to you, I felt like it was like it was like genius because it describes so deeply how I felt all those years having trauma stuck in my body. I just kept trying to get away from it. And food was how I, what I used to get away from it. And until I stepped back and stopped my um, unhealthy food behaviors, I didn't even know how deeply, deeply it was wounded. Um, Like I didn't even know I just thought I liked food. And by the way, I'm still a foodie and a great cook. But, but, but I thought, I didn't know the scope of the pain and the trauma. And um, so I always tell people to do the ACE, adverse child experience test so you can do, learn your trauma score. It's a trauma score of zero to 10. And I have a trauma score of an eight, maybe a nine. And I'm telling you, we negate trauma in, in, in our community. Right, it's like no, no, that happened, but I'm over it. And what I um, learned in therapy is you don't really get over things; you just find a way to function with them. But you don't always find a way to function in a healthy, loving way. Um, and so, I'm I'm here to help people like move through this because I just think like with someone like me, if I could get to the other side of this and become a foodie and love myself like unconditionally, like no joke, no platitudes, like it's not fake. Like I just accept who I am. I gave up perfectionism. And and this is like, like we're so hard on ourselves. We're so tough on ourselves. Um, and if you're finding yourself like dieting and it's not working, you have to start to realize maybe that's not your lane.
3: We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving all of in June.
3: we're back. I definitely want to talk about, um, a sense of community. I know you've mentioned that a lot and, you know, a statistic you've written about a lot, plenty is the fact that black girls are 50% more likely than white girls to exhibit bulimic behavior, including both binging and purging about. And so this idea that, um, that you did initially seek treatment in New York, and didn't feel that there was community or even a belief system there that, that you needed help uh, for the right reasons. Um, I definitely just want to talk about um, your experience finding community as a black woman struggling with an eating disorder.
4: It was hard, right? Because I come from an environment that's like, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Like, Don't share your secrets. Like, Don't let anyone outside of the house know what's going on in the house. Right. And also at the same community that is, you know, a huge proponent of like diuretics and diet teas and all these um, forms of bulimia that they're not even aware of. You know, like every auntie, all the, like they all, you know, use this um, laxative tea, which is a huge form of bulimia in the black community and the Indian community, East Indian community like a bunch of communities. And, um, you know, for me, finding a support group was really hard because even when I found one, my head said, these are not your people, right? Like they don't look like you. You know, over time I found more black women and there are, you know, specific support groups for black women with eating disorders that I was able to find. And, but um, when I first came in, I was so desperate. I was like, you know, I had to get over myself in a lot of ways. I had to just find a community who did what I did with food. And that was like my initial point. Because, you know, I found a Black therapist that I loved. And, and she knew, she wasn't able to help me because she didn't understand my eating disorder. Now, since then, I've had... Tons of black eating disorder disorder therapists reach out to me from all over the country. So now they exist. They exist in a way that when I started. Um, You know, like on my website, I have a list of resources, including like support groups and and, um, like not everyone can afford treatment centers. And the one thing I felt about treatment centers is um, what do you do afterwards? Not so much... If you go in and you get help, but how do you find like connection when you leave? And that's and that's what I was very curious about. I and there there are all kinds of support groups. Like I, I can name five. I'm not they may be on my website, but there there are all kinds and all levels and all kinds of comfort. They're now all on Zoom. Mm. So that's that's helpful. Just like you can find, like, a group for alcoholics, you can find a group of people with eating problems somewhere.
2: You talk about having it, how difficult it is to find community after seeking treatment, and now we have this whole new level of difficulty with the pandemic, and the idea that, you know, our most eating disorders come from wanting a sense of control, and now everything we've ever known in our world is completely out of control. And so I can't imagine um, what that is like for those who are already struggling or have struggled. Can you give us advice on how to manage something
4: this huge? Yes, I actually can. Um, You know, my heart breaks about the pandemic because there are people stuck in households where they don't feel safe, right? Or where they feel, Completely overwhelmed or they're isolated and all they have is food um so one way I, I always I say is like build a community yourself I know there are online communities that are there to help people um there are free like there are free or very low cost internet therapies right now like people, people I know who are, are, are seeking out therapy online, it's a lot easier if you're afraid to go and talk to someone. Um, it's like every community you need is accessible on your phone, right? And I also say if, if there's someone in your community who you feel you're using as a, sense of, as a sense of support, not like a, you know, you can't be a vampire. You can't go to one person and burn them out, right? Like that's also mm-hmm. important. But if, there's, if there are people in your community who you naturally go to and who you get, you go to them and afterwards you feel worse, so that's not your immediate support group, right? Like I always say like it's like the ring of Saturn, whereas you got to keep the people who make you feel safe and loved and supported and who help you grow on, your, on that inner ring. And um, when people, especially in the pandemic, when people make, you know, Wrap up against your shame buttons, you know, like it's a good idea to put even, and even if they're in your family, to put them in a second ring, right? Like, so like if you hashtag like eating disorder recovery, you'll find some support, um, go online, eating disorder recovery support groups, you know, food support groups, like they're there and they're there to help you. You don't have to be alone. Um, also, there's a lot of meditation apps to just like help you, you know, quiet yourself. Um, if anyone reaches out to me, my website's Stephanie Covington uh, I guess. Um .com. I yes, thank you. And I could <laughs> I would, <laughs> I try and send people to um in the right direction, you know. Um like a couple of months ago, I think I'm, I took over January Jones's Instagram, and like there was a lot of feedback and a lot of like, this doesn't happen in the black community and this doesn't happen. And I have been at a school talking to high school students, so I, you know, in in South Central, so I do know how big this is in our community and how no one's talking about it, or people go in the opposite direction and just eat. This is not about body. This is not about how anyone looks in your relationship with food and your body. It doesn't have, I don't, like, I don't, I, I, it's not about a diet. Like, that. I don't do diets, so I can't give anyone any information about a diet. But I can tell you how to get through your trauma, right? And so if you haven't t- taken the adverse childhood experience test, I suggest everyone take that test because it really will help you even if you have a trauma score of one and it's, and it's, you know, poverty or abuse, that's something that sits in your body.
2: I have the link for that. So we'll make sure it's in our show notes for those listening so they can go take that test.
4: Yeah. Um, I just started, um, I want to say a month ago doing videos on Instagram because, you know, it really, I, I don't know. It, it It's antithetical It's like not my instinct but I realized like people are struggling and I have a lot of information and mm-hmm. recovery and I have, a, and so I wanted, so I'm trying to build a platform just to help more people. Because they can use the help. They People really need the help. Yeah. And, we, and And it's like, when you feel isolated and when you feel like you're the only one and you feel like, like, why is she able to do that diet? And I can't, you know, it's like, you can't compare your experience with anyone else's. You just have to stay in your own lane on your own road and get the help you need. And you, and we all deserve it. Like we all deserve it.
3: And it's an addiction. It's the same as like, why can that person have one drink and I can't, why can that person walk out of the door without having to touch things a bunch of times? And I can't like, it is, it is not, you know, it is so much deeper. Um, Than just I know, but I know that there are some people who might not understand how deep the disease goes, and just goes. Well, then why don't they just eat? Why don't they? Why? Why can't someone just stop throwing up their food? Like why don't they just stop it? And
4: yeah, I heard all um, of that. Just in terms of facts, they say that forty to sixty percent of all women with eating and men with eating disorders have have experienced either covert sexual trauma or some kind of real sexual trauma. In childhood, and and in the black community, that's also another thing we don't talk about. And in a lot of communities, in the Latino community, in the Asian community, um, it's something we don't talk about. And so, when people say, "Oh, I've gone through that, but I'm okay," I, I'm just going to call bullshit because it's impossible. Because that's still stuck in your body. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be okay with things that occur to you in your childhood. How yeah. can we be a good Friend
2: for someone going through this because in so many articles I've read what people do to try to help actually counters it and is not productive. Uh, How can what are some examples of things we can do to help friends who are going through this struggle?
4: I think it's just like someone who has cancer, right? You go, I'm here, like, I just want you to know I'm here. I have friends that I just constantly send little love texts to. Hey, I know this is a tough time. I'm here um there's a um website called Feast, so it's an acronym for something, but it's it's for families of and friends of people who are going through this, so they have a lot of like support on their website Nita you know I love nita um so so I try and give people like a gentle nudge, you know, hey, there's some um you know there's some free therapies or, Hey, here's a great book. Um, Or, you know, and just saying, you know, Oh man, I like, here's what's great about you guys. You can now say, Oh my God, we," woman who really helped us. And I just didn't realize how, how multi-layered eating disorders was or disordered eating is. I always go with disordered eating when I talk to people. Cause I never call people out on an eating disorder. Cause mm. you know, yo-yo dieting body, you know, body dysmorphia, like, like be it eating in public, only drinking water, um, only eating orthorexia, which is the, I I had all of these by the way, which is the obsession with healthy eating. Oh, I'm only going to, you know, fast. Or I'm only going to eat a salad. I'm only going to eat that and no dressing. And that you know, I, I went and talked to a high school group yesterday where my daughter went to high school recently. And there were kids who said, um, I've never seen my mother eat anything other than a salad, you know? Yeah. You know, think of how much, think of how passionate we are about food, how good it is and how like, if you're unhealed, you can't allow yourself that pleasure. Mm -hmm. Right. Or mm-hmm. if um, in Becky Wadsworth Thompson's book where she interviewed women, it was the first book written where um, someone had interviewed women of color and um, a black woman in the book said, I'm black and I'm poor. And the only thing I have is my food. And if you take away my food, I have nothing. Right. So, I mean, the pendulum on this can swing all the way from only eating salads in, in all communities. Mm-hmm. Right binging. Yeah. I know a lot of people who just close that door and go through those drive-throughs and like that's their life. Every every night is trying to get through a drive-thru. You know, people who experience night trauma who all they can do at night is binge. Right. And and so there are meetings online that happen all over the world that you can jump on at, you know, three in the morning. You know? So there, there's support.
2: I want to talk about the lack of representation
4: in the media
2: of Black communities suffering, having disordered eating. Um, do you think that that translates into lack of representation in family relationships, in the medical environment, when you went to seek help and you felt like an outsider? Do you think that has some sort of part in all that?
4: I think it's very complicated. Okay. Um, I've been at the forefront. So I've been in a position where a lot of specialists have come to me and say, oh, we're doing a study and we want to do a study with like this subsection of black women. And I can't like, and I'm like, sorry, like I can't throw people under the bus who are struggling with an eating disorder to be in your study. You know? So the problem is we, you know, there's a lack of trust. And I also say all the time, like you can't come into our community just asking us to be your lab rats without offering something right so so that's a reason you don't see a lot of us in these studies like what nita did um when starting in 2009 is they got a group of people lgbt black men and we all went through their their toolkits and rewrote them so that they were um inclusive you know so so and then what they started doing is if you look at their website, they always have men, they always have black women, they always have, you know, they have, they have the whole healthy at every size campaign. I mean, they really have done a lot of work to change how this, that this is not just a a, a rich white woman's disease. And it's also not just about being skinny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the misconceptions. People are like, oh, you think you're a white girl? I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I love all this melanin you know, um, you know, but there's a lot of judgment about, about eating disorders. And, um, you know, I, I just think like it is a very fragile place, There, fragile place to be, to be struggling with an eating disorder and the time of a pandemic, um, because most people don't understand it. Like families don't understand it. And so what I was taught is, um, it's, it's not your family's, you know, don't expect anyone else to understand it, right? Like you have to get your your help and your support, but you can't expect like a normal eater to understand why you have this, you know, warped relationship with food.
3: Stephanie, what is the most beautiful thing that you have taken from recovery?
4: I think that I can Right, like I, when I went into program, I really thought like, oh, this is, yeah, people are going to be recover, but not me. Like I don't get to have this, you know. I this is, um, this is for them. You know, <laughs> it's like this is for the people whose fathers buy them BMWs at sixteen. I don't know. Like I, I, I really did think like, um, that and and. You know, I grew up thinking that, like, if my outsides were different, right? If I had the, right, if I had money, if I had all the things, then um, I would be happy. And that ha- that occurred, and I had this eating disorder. And so, th- like, you can't outrun your trauma, like that. You can't out shop it. You can't out fancy it. Like. Like you have to work through it. And so the most beautiful thing that I've got out of this is when I see people who come in, who come to me or into my um, support community and feel hopeless. And then a year later, they're like helping other people who feel hopeless because they're no longer hopeless. And so that's what, that's the most beautiful thing is that I get to be front and center um, when people recover and you know and and I'm a gourmet cook like I used to be terrified of food and you know now I'm like ooh like I want I'm going to eat that that's good like it's 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 crazy that it's the little things you know that I can eat whatever I want because it's just food I don't eat to shove down my feelings I don't eat to punish myself I eat because it's tasty and I, and, I, and I like it
2: so what kind of things do you do during the pandemic to stay healthy um, mentally emotionally and physically
4: well I have my support community mm-hmm. I um I love dancing I love to put on some music and just dance around the room mm-hmm. meditate um you know I go on walks haven't done the hiking thing I do live in LA but I haven't done the hiking thing um you know it looks crowded um <laughs> the other night I went with my mahjong group and we you know all socially distanced and at the beach at, like at mm-hmm. sunsets it was empty um and it felt like it felt like I was shooting it was like oh my god at the beach. um you know um like I said I have a 20 year old so you know we like each other and that's fun and she doesn't have this disease in any way so that's also great um the way i think about this disease is i can unless i do this work unless i like talk to you guys unless i help someone who's struggling but if i can help other people you know i have really good boundaries i don't like wear myself out um but if i could be of service in the world by saying like you deserve to live free of your trauma um, and your trauma responses, then I, I don't know, I feel like it's a win. Because mm-hmm. um, we got to get through this together. This is like, we're going through something nobody has ever gone through. This is, you know, 100 years from the last pandemic, this looks very different. And um, I, just, I just think, like, be gentle on yourself. And, and do your research, learn, learn what's really going on underneath your needs.
2: How do you have that conversation? You now know that your 20 year old daughter doesn't suffer from that. How do you bring up your past life experience with her and start a conversation so that she's aware
4: of your, what you've been through? She's known forever. Like she's never read my book, but, um, you know I'll, I'll go i'll be like oh i have to go to this i have to get on a plane and go to this college to tour and talk about eating disorders and self-esteem and sexual abuse and you know I, when she was 14 she came to me and she's like mom blah 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 this friend of hers was struggling with an eating disorder and they were at like a party and the friend like set them all down and said this is what i need from you guys to help me and um so she knows like this is like one of my platforms. And she, and she'll be like, oh, I have a friend who's like, what do I say? I mean, she has a trauma score of one, right? Her parents are divorced and we co-parented her. So I just think it's normal for her to know that this is what I do because I don't, I don't hide it. And she's 20 now. As you know, 20 year olds know everything.
2: Uh, they know everything
3: just ask them yeah they know everything um we start this podcast every time saying we're in our 30s and we know nothing so get ready to unlearn
4: everything oh my god by the time you're in your 30s they yeah exactly and I mean (laughs) I also wanted to make sure that I raised a kid who didn't have weirdness around food you know, um, which I mean, I, like I take that as a huge win,
2: right? So how how do you do that? I'm thinking of my little girl and wanting to make sure that I do that with her.
4: Okay, if you're not an obsessive dieter, if you're not like like like, there, I always say that we're our kids' first superheroes, right. right? Like we are their superheroes. If you take yourself off that pedestal. That I mean, they don't do it, you do it, right? Yeah. And, um, so so one of the things that is, like, you eat. Like, I have a very clear idea that's, you know, not popular. When my kids, stepkids, when they were seven, I went and got, like, one of those big red candy machines, and I filled it with candy, and I put it in the middle of the, lo- and I put it in the corner of the living room, and they were like, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> and And... Within a month, they just didn't care. They didn't care. That candy got old, because I was like, "Oh, you can have a quarter, and you can have some candy for dessert, or you can have a candy for like I, I wanted to take like the mystery out of candy, like it, like, like, but that was for me. Like, I, and other parents are like, oh. like I was, I know parents who are like, I once had a six-year-old say to me, sugar is evil,' and I was like, okay, um, because I my daughter lost a sports game and I was like, I'll take you out for ice cream. Let's go get ice cream. And they were like, and and I'm like, for me, I try not to demonize food because if you demonize it, then it can be weaponized, right? Then you're like, oh no, I'm eating something bad. We've all been to dinner with those people who will say, oh my God, I'm eating something bad. And I'm like, it's food. You eat it, donate it. Like take it in with love. Yeah. So, um, I think yep. you just, like for my daughter, I had to make sure she, you know, got enough vegetables, like got enough of the good stuff. And her her doctor would say like, if she ate a good meal every two days, like leave her alone. But I think, you know, I think it starts with us. It's an, It's a family disease. If you're watching everything you eat, if you're like naming everything good or bad, like they're little sponges. You know, they're going to go out in public to their little friend's house and their friend is going to offer them something and they're going to feel bad and they're going to eat it and they're going to be like, oh, I ate that thing and my mother thinks it's bad. And, you know, so so, I think it's just like teaching.
2: By example. Earl.
4: Yeah, balance. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. They're not going to have donuts for every meal. But, you know,
2: it's fine. I love that so yeah. much. So much good advice and things to... Model myself after, thank you
4: also, how because this comes up more and more when I meet new people who are struggling, how parents talk about their kids' bodies. I'm just like their body, their business. Dad doesn't talk about it. Mom doesn't talk about it, nobody you know you're smart, you're strong, you're you're wow, you keep working hard, you do like like you're adorable, like there's a a lot of things we can give our kids praises, praise on. Instead of, oh, you were so good for not eating that. Like, those, that's the messaging that will um, have a longer term effect. On it. Or, you know, my mother used to talk about people's bodies in a not kind way. Um, she she passed, but she won't hear this. You know, <laughs> um, and that all affects you, right?
3: It, yeah, it sticks with you. I know you started this saying... Uh, this conversation saying, like, how much when you're younger, it's just all that emotional trauma that we carry into adulthood. And, and um, all of a sudden, when you're an adult, and you've got children, you just realize how much you say they just immediately hold on to, and you just see the cycle of it already. And so hopefully, you know, for anyone listening to this conversation, and I know it's a wonderful reminder to be so aware of, you know, yeah, what you say, not only to your children about your children, but also what you say to your children about yourself.
4: You couldn't have said that any better. And I I always say like, you're allowed to fire the inner perfectionist in your, in your, you know, right? Like, oh, sometimes mommy's not going to get it right. You know, it's okay. You know? Yeah what a good way to live.
2: I love that motto to just take with me from this conversation as well, just to know that we don't always have to be perfect, especially with what's going on in our world today. Um, and just love yourself, love yourself through the whole thing.
4: And secretly don't like people who are deeply perfectionists annoy you. There. There. <laughs> there. totally <laughs> <laughs> I I just, to be real. just be real no. you know right yeah. right
2: well Stephanie, you know, this has been such a wonderful conversation and such an eye-opening um experience thank you for being so real and so honest with us um about your experience and how we can continue to help those going through this it's definitely an extremely important conversation to have.
3: We're going to have um, everything that you referenced in our show notes, um, links, articles. And I also want to give um, our listeners an opportunity to know your socials because you mentioned they, they could follow you and contact you as well. Uh, your okay, socials so on Instagram.
4: I, I always have to find my social so bad. My Instagram <laughs> handle is Steph, S-T-E-P-H-C Armstrong. Yeah, I'm pretty new to social media, so this will maybe make you ladies laugh. Um, I gave a talk at Instagram a few years ago, and at the talk they went, you know you don't have an Instagram, right? <laughs> and I was like <laughs> <laughs> So I went home and I got an Instagram. And then Instagram, you know, challenged and I thought I was supposed to just post pictures of my daughter. because like, this is how bad I was. And um Then during COVID, I started seeing like a lot of struggle and I had done a workshop with some some really powerful black women. And we just decided that um, one of the things I needed to do was to like come out of my shell and talk. Right. So during COVID, I I just, a month or so ago, I started sharing some of my experience of how to help people and it's now no longer uncomfortable. It's completely comfortable for me to like wake up and do a video. So, um, But I, I, I talk a lot about recovery and about self-love and what we can do to get that next place together.
3: That's great. Well, we'll definitely make sure to direct our listeners um, to visit your Instagram so that they can, they can uh, utilize your help and watch your videos and uh, say hello to you as well. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us today. I think the word that comes to mind right now is gratitude for, you know, we, we've been very excited for a month now to all come back together, you know, record an episode, get back into the groove and knowing that today would include really heavy subject matter, um, before we actually all got on the mic and pressed record, we were all just talking on zoom and getting to know each other. And the word comes to mind, just like joy. Stephanie just had so much joy and and was excited to, you know, get to know us. And we were excited to get to know her and we all talked about being moms. Mm -hmm. And so I just, uh, I love that Stephanie was able to be vulnerable in sharing her experiences with her eating disorder and recovery. Um, and also, just for the opportunity to us all get to know each other at the start of this episode. I didn't realize how much I needed that to start off the week. Mm,
2: right. She speaks with such a love, and her essence has so much care to it. And I think that that's why she's so effective with what she does. Um, yeah, I think she did a really good job helping us navigate um, a subject matter that we don't have a lot of experience in.
3: Because it's true. It's, you know, I love when we wanted to talk to her about how can you be a supportive friend or family member to someone who is experiencing an eating disorder or going through recovery. And the reality is, is she's like, you just show up for them and say like, I'm here because that it's the work that, you know, they need to do themselves. It's the space of recovery that they need for themselves, but um, still showing that you can show up. And even if you don't understand, but that you're there mm-hmm. to lend whatever support you can, and speaking of support, I know that Stephanie kept referencing NETA, and that's the National Eating Disorders Association. So if you or anyone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, cannot encourage you enough, um, you just go to nationaleatingdisorders.org, and there's a helpline there, there's support, there's educational tools, and so they are there for you at all times, and we will include this in the show notes as well.
2: If you're listening right now and you want their confidential helpline, it's uh, 1-800-931-2237. We really encourage you guys, if you are inspired to talk to a friend about this or reach out on your own behalf, please do so. Because um, you're never alone. You're never in this alone. And what's happening right now in our world is quite possibly one of the most difficult things we'll go through. So be kind to yourself. Um, And know that eating disorders are never something that you need to feel guilty about.
3: Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We have another great new episode ready to go for you, waiting for you next week. Join us for Directionally Challenged. Take care of yourselves. See you then.